verse 13. Uh, we're going to be working through up to 18. It says, Now when Jesus came into the, the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the second movie of the film trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, if any of you are familiar with that, towards the very end of the film there's this huge battle being waged between good and evil. The race of men from the land of Rohan and Theoden, their king, are battling against some very fierce creatures called the Uruk-hai. They're twice their size and twice their power. Uh, in a seemingly endless battle where Theoden and his men, as well as uh, another mighty warrior named Aragorn from another land, they become holed up in this castle, defending themselves from these fierce creatures with everything they know how. The Urukai eventually break through the outer walls and begin a massive slaughter of soldiers. King Theoden and Aragorn at this point are hiding in the innermost chamber of the, of the castle, and they're trying to barricade the entrance to the innermost chamber. And uh, you, if you look at Theoden's face at this time, he's just almost succumbed to defeat and despair. And he looks at Aragorn and he says, So much death. What can men do against such reckless hate? And Aragorn, he doesn't reply to him. He looks at him and he says, Ride out with me. Ride out and meet them. And, and then Theoden looks at him and he says, For death and glory. And Aragorn says, For Rohan, for your people. Theoden then breaks into this real powerful poetic statement. He jumps on his horse and he and Aragorn, they charge out the door and just destroy with their swords everything in their path. And when they get outside the castle walls, they see that help has arrived and they powerfully triumph over all their enemies. Now, I want you to keep this picture in mind, this story, because we're going to come back to it, because it's going to help us to, to paint a good picture of what we're going to be working through. If you were to ask most Bible-believing uh, scholars or even just Christians where they would need to go to learn the doctrine of the church, most would probably say the book of Ephesians. After all, it is the place where the Apostle Paul lays out the sort of basic foundation and function of the church, what Christ has done for the church, is doing, and will do for the church. You might say it is the textbook for our understanding of the church. But this morning I would like to look at the doctrine of the church from a different standpoint here in Matthew 16 and work our way into a few passages in the book of Revelation to see from this vantage point the doctrine of the church, its function, mission, and goal in the world. Just to give you some uh, information of exactly what's going on, here in Matthew 16, Jesus has left the region of Magdala at this time and he's gone to Caesarea Philippi. Now this is a town that lies in the northern part of the Jordan River. It gets its name from the Tetrarch Philip, 
who refounded this ancient city of what was formerly called Panaeus. Panaeus. He named it Caesarea after one of the Roman kings, uh, Caesar Augustus. Now, this original town's name of Panaeus was named after the Greek god Pan. So this was a very pagan city where Jesus and his disciples were. This was not a Jewish city, which makes for a very interesting backdrop for this confession of Peter's to hail Jesus as the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus then asks his disciples, he says, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And his disciples, they rattle off a few prophets Some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah. Others say he could just be one of the prophets of the Old Testament. And then it says, Jesus, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And notice that only one voice speaks up, and that's Peter. The same one who always seems to step out in faith and oftentimes get himself knee-deep in water, which actually happened on one occasion, interestingly enough. Uh, But what does Peter reply? He doesn't agree with the crowds who are purporting Jesus to be just some old prophet. He says, you're the Christ or you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And how does Jesus reply to him? He says, he calls him blessed and that flesh and blood did not reveal this to him. Flesh and blood was just an Aramaic expression of saying human beings. So it was human beings that did not reveal this to you, but my Father who was in heaven. Jesus then goes on to affirm what he believes about Peter. We've just seen what uh, Peter is confessing about Christ. Now we're going to see what Christ is going to confess about Peter. He says, and you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Now, if any of you are familiar with some of the ongoing debates within the church, specifically between Protestants and Catholics, about this passage in particular that has stirred some controversy, The controversy is there's a huge play on words going on in the original languages with Peter's name, which is in the Greek, it's Petros, and the word rock, which is the Greek word Petra. I know that's a lot, but without trying to have to go into all the nitty-gritty of what's going on in the Greek and the Aramaic, I will tell you that the question here is, is it Peter's confession on which the church will be built, uh, that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, or is it Peter himself? Uh, I'm by no means an expert in in Greek or these original languages, but I will tell you that what I do know about these original languages uh, and about what the rest of Scripture says about the church, that it seems to me almost undeniable that it is Christ is speaking about Peter himself and not his confession on which he will build his church. After all, it was Peter who was leading all the other apostles throughout the opening chapters of Acts. And in Ephesians 2.20, Uh, Paul says that the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. All that being said, we see this next statement that just lifts the passage, you might say, to a new power. Jesus says, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, or literally the gates of hell of Hades. Hades is just the Greek term for the place of death. Some of your translations may say the powers of death. It's the same thing. Powers of death might even be a a better one, even though it's not the literal one. But this gates of type language, it comes from various parts of the Bible, specifically in the Old Testament, where it's seen as the place of power in a city or the place of political or cultural discourse of a particular town. 
But the specific passage on which Jesus is probably drawing this phrase, the gates of Hades, is in Isaiah 38.10. And you can turn there if you like in Isaiah 38.10. I'll read it so you don't have to if you don't like. But in Isaiah 38.10, Hezekiah, king of Judah at that time, he writes, I said, in the middle of my days I must depart. I am consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years, or in the Greek translation of this passage, the gates of Hades for the rest of my years. Now we see this word Sheol come up again in verse 18, where he says, For Sheol does not thank you, death does not praise you, those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. In the Old Testament, the place of death was a very mysterious thing to everyone, even the people of God at that time. One commentator, David Guzik, he says it like this. This passage reflects the uncertain understanding of the world beyond before the finished work of Jesus Christ. Hezekiah knew he could praise God while he walked this earth, but he wasn't so sure about the world beyond. And I am quite sure that Jesus' disciples who were hearing this message as Jews probably also understood the place of death to be a very mysterious thing and a place and a thing to be feared. But the picture that Jesus draws out of this passage is not one of fearing this place or the powers of death. In fact, he gives us a picture of victory. He says, and the gate, uh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, There's another commentator that I wanted to mention here who describes the picture in a way that I think he captures perfectly what Christ is saying here. He says, listen to this, the gates suggest the picture of a fortress or prison which lock in the dead and lock out their rescuers. This would imply that the church is on the offensive and its master will plunder the domain of Satan. I'd like us now to look a little deeper into some of the basic foundational traits of the church and what our primary mission is in the world. And the questions that I'd like to challenge you with, what I'd like us to answer from this text are, what is the primary mission of the church, and how can we have assurance that the purposes of God through the church will not be hindered. So what is the primary mission of the church, and how can we have assurance that these purposes of God through the church will never be hindered? Some of you may or may not know that the first use of the word church is found here in Matthew 16. The Greek word is ecclesia, where we get a lot of our words like ecclesiology or ecclesiastical authority. It literally means assembly or congregation. It was a term used in classical Greek for the assembling of citizens of a particular city, oftentimes in a political setting. But as Matthew uses it here, it most likely constitutes what we would know as the gathering of believers every Sunday physically, as well as the term that describes the believers throughout the entire world, the collective people of God throughout the entire world. And what do we see that the church is built upon? Well, the church is built upon the rock. As we saw in our text here in Matthew 16, where Jesus is using this play on words with Peter's name and the word rock, either way you interpret the verse, 
we are led to believe that principally it is built upon the rock. It is built upon a solid foundation. Again, Ephesians 20, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. So it's not something shifty or prone to weakness, but it's a solid rock that Christ is building or has built his church. As I often reflect on what is the main mission of the church, and Daryl touched on some of this, I think it was last week, I find myself getting off on so many tangents, and you can ask my wife, it's ridiculous the things I get into. But we live in a time of the period of the church where there's a lot of confusion about this, where the focus on the church's primary mission varies from local church to local church. Some churches put a lot of emphasis on building bigger buildings or attracting a lot of people, or some come up with these real elaborate ways to defend the faith so intellectually that I think they lose sight and it utterly fails to encapsulate or capture what is the primary mission of the church. Look back at our quote from earlier where one commentator said, the gates, speaking of the gates of hell, suggest the picture of a fortress or prison which lock in the dead and lock out their rescuers. This would imply that the church is on the offensive and, the ma- and its master will plunder the domain of Satan. So what is the church taking with her in order to plunder the domain of Satan? The answer is the gospel. It's the gospel, the good news. That very thing which Christ commissioned to his apostles to preach to the entire world, and by way of application, every believer in every age is to carry to the nations. As Millard Erickson says in his book, Introducing Christian Doctrine, he says, It is important for us to look closely at the one factor which gives basic shape to everything the church does, the element which lies at the heart of all its functions, namely the gospel, the good news. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus announced that he had been anointed specifically to preach the gospel. Later, he charged the apostles to continue his ministry by spreading the gospel. Without doubt, then, the gospel lies at the root of all that the church does. Without doubt, then, the gospel lies at the root of all that the church does. Is the gospel something that we keep as believers here as primary in our lives? Believing, as the Apostles' Creed so aptly puts it, that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. He, on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Our lives can get so busy, and we can distract, get distracted by so many things in life, but there is no excuse for us to get distracted from the gospel and carrying that gospel to a twisted and decaying world. I've heard it put like this. If you had the cure for cancer, would you keep it hidden from those who are dying? 
Would you just let people suffer and die? Oh, of course you wouldn't. You would take it to everyone who needed this cure. Then how much more should we, who have the cure for the ultimate cancer, which is namely death, give it to those who are dying? In fact, if you want to get even a little more sharp and focused here, Ephesians 2.1 says that those who are unbelievers are dead in trespasses and sins. They're already dead, present tense. It's like walking corpses around if you're an unbeliever. But we can give them something that will bring them to life. It says in John 5.24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do we want to give life to the dead, or are we content with, as the old saying goes, watching the world go to hell in a handbasket? I'd like to work through our our second question that I've posed to us here of how can we have assurance that the purposes of God through the church will never be hindered. Looking back at our text this morning, in Matthew 16, verse 18, Jesus says, The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus gives us his promise that no matter how destructive and powerful the world might be or might become, it will not in any ultimate fashion overtake the church in this age or in the age to come. As some of you might know, Brittany and I are close followers of the ministry, the Voice of the Martyrs. And as I look at some of the brutal attacks around the world, one of the main trends I always see is that even though the church is horribly attacked, the church continues to press on and grow and grow and grow. It seems like the more that the church is attacked, the more it is strengthened, much like in the Old Testament when the children of Israel were in the land of Egypt, and it says the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied. And there's a lot of good imagery that can sort of paint the picture of what we're talking about here, and it's found throughout the book of Revelation, but we'll look at just a few here. So turn to Revelation chapter 11, uh, if you have your Bibles. Turn to Revelation chapter 11. We're going to be looking at a few different things. Revelation chapter 11, starting in verse 1. John is told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations. And they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So we see this picture of those who worship at the altar in the innermost court of the temple, but the outside is given over to the nations to trample for 42 months. And the image is this. The temple that's being talked about here is just a figurative symbol for the church. And though the nations may trample it and trample it and trample it through this age, they will never get to the inner court where the people of God are. This doesn't mean that Christians won't suffer. It doesn't mean that Christians won't get killed. But death will not get the ultimate victory. Looking on in just a few verses down in Revelation 11, it says, 
And we see these two witnesses pop up who prophesy for 42 months, who have the power to shut the sky so that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And these witnesses are also just symbolic figures of the preachers throughout the entire church age, the preachers of the gospel. And the power to shut the sky is just also symbolic language saying that it just it will not rain. There's, it's going to stop rain. Things that destroy or could hamper their message, it will not happen. They have the power to shut it up. And then goes on to say that these two witnesses are killed, their bodies lie in the streets, and the world rejoices at their death. Wouldn't the, wouldn't the world love to see the church die? But guess what it says in verse 11? That after three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. We then see the ensuing judgment of God on the world in the next few verses. Again, it may look like that the church is battered, beaten up, and even killed sometimes. But in the end, the breath of life from God enters her, and she remains with God. She will continue on. One last picture in the book of Revelation. In the next chapter, chapter 12, there's this image of the woman and the dragon. And the woman here is also a figurative picture of the church, the entire people of God throughout from the Old Testament through to the New. And the dragon is obviously Satan here. And we see Satan trying to destroy the woman and her offspring, but what does it say here? It says, he, that is Satan, pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child, but the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So we see here in this picture that the woman, the church, is taken by God to a safe place to be protected and nourished. Satan tries to come at her in every way he can to destroy her, even to the point of spewing a river out of his mouth and sweeping her away with a flood. But what happens? The earth opens its mouth, swallows the river that the dragon poured from his mouth. Thus, God wins and the devil loses. Or you might say, the church wins and the devil loses. God is going to carry out his plans, the preaching of his gospel, no matter what Satan or the forces of this wicked world try to do. So how do all these facts and these images I've given you, because I've given you a lot this morning, fit into what message I'm trying to convey today? And how should what we know about the definition of the church, the foundation of the church, the main mission of the church, and how we can have assurance that God will preserve the church. How can all this affect the way we think and we live our lives as Christians? 
If we look at the first point about the definition of the church, it being an assembly, it should make us constantly aware that we are not alone in this life, but we are an assembly of believers together in this world. We are here to bear one another's burdens. The book of Proverbs says that in the multitude of counsel, there's safety. There's safety in not being alone. We're made to look out for one another. We know it in our bones. Are you concerned about your brothers and sisters this morning here in this local congregation? Are you concerned about those throughout the world, those who are being thrown into prison for the name of Jesus, those who are getting their heads chopped off for the name of Jesus? I don't know if any of you have heard the news about a man in Iran. He's a pastor named Yusuf Nadarkani. And we got a picture of him here. Now, this is a man who is a pastor of a church in Iran that was imprisoned in 2009 for leaving Islam and evangelizing Muslims, at least that was his charge. He was arrested in October of 2009, and in September of 2010, he received a death sentence. He was originally only going to have about 20 to 30 days from his sentence until his execution. It's not like here in America where we get 20 years probably. But due to international pressure and obviously the grace of God, it has thus far been delayed. He's still in prison, but he is still with us. This is a man with a wife and two young sons, aged eight and six. This is a man whose only crime was loving Jesus and spreading the gospel. A certain ministry obtained a letter from Pastor Yusuf while he was in prison. He wrote it from his prison cell. It's quite long, so I'm just going to read the last part, and even it's a a little bit long, but bear with me. He says here, Dear brothers and sisters, we must be more careful than any other time, because in these days the hearts and thoughts of many are revealed so that the faith is tested. May your treasure be where there is no moth and rust. I would like to remind you of some verses that we nearly discuss Every day, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But as long as our human will has priority over God's will, his will shall not be done. As we have learned from him in Gethsemane, he surrendered his will to the Father. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. What we are bearing today is a difficult but not unbearable situation because neither he has tested us more than our faith and our endurance, nor does he do so as such. And as we have known from before, we must beware not to fail, but to advance in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and consider these bumps and prisons as opportunities to testify to his name. He said, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the, of the Father and of the holy angels. As a small servant, necessarily in prison, catch that word, necessarily, he's saying necessarily in prison, 
to carry out what I must do, I say with faith in the word of God that he will come soon. But when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Discipline yourself with faith in the word of God. Retain your souls with patience, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. May you be granted grace and blessings increasingly in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yusuf Nadarkani, Lakan Prison in Rasht, 2nd of June, 2010. People like this man are a part of the church. They're a part of the assembly that we must remember, pray for, and support. We are an assembly of believers. Please don't forget that. Don't forget that. We are an assembly. And don't forget what we've gone through before. This assembly is built upon solid rock. And that even if the church is attacked and even knocked down, the foundation will still be there. Sand can blow away. Soft soil can sink. But a rock will not be moved no matter what. And this is what we're a part of. A structure that will endure through everything that Satan, the world, and even our own sinful flesh might throw against us. I look at what's going on in the Middle East right now and all this upheaval going on. And I think it's very likely we'll see uh, most, if not all, of the Middle East being ruled by harsh Islamic law pretty soon. And I think about what Islamic law does to those who leave Islam and convert to Christianity. And the sentence is death. They kill people who do that. The same thing they've passed on our brother Yusuf in Iran. However, regardless of what the media may say about Islam being the fastest growing religion in the world or, the most, or, or a very powerful force in the world, they will not overtake the church. They may take over our government, they may take over our businesses. They may take over our schools. But they will not overtake the church. Read my lips. The gates of hell itself will not prevail against the church. Period. Let's look back at the picture I gave you from the movie The Lord of the Rings where Theoden says, So much death. What can men do against such reckless hate? The powers of hell and the world have a reckless hate. They have no remorse. They have no mercy. They don't care about the church. Much like when Theoden and Aragorn get on their horses and charge out the gates and triumph over their enemies, we too who are a part of the true church, the assembly, we will prevail against those forces because we have Christ. Even if our bodies are killed, because we have one thing that they do not have, and that's an all-powerful God who will continue his purpose to carry out his gospel to the nations. And because we have another thing they don't have, and that's eternal life. And they can never, ever, ever take that from us. The world and Satan would love to see the church destroyed, and they will go to great lengths to fight that, to that end. 
The world goes to great lengths, as we can see every day, to fight for what it believes in, whether it's money, sex, politics, drugs, land, oil, you name it. (laughs) They're going to fight for it. It reminds me of this old Beastie Boys song, and I don't see Daryl in here, but I don't know if he knew the Beastie Boys. You got to fight for your right to party. Ridiculous, isn't it? If the world will go to such lengths to fight for what it believes in, even to the point of fighting for a right to party, how much more then should we fight the good fight and fight for that which is truly worth fighting for? And please know that when you fight the good fight, your labor is not in vain. It's what's called the good fight. Whenever you share the gospel with someone and you get rejected, whenever you get ridiculed because you might not laugh at a dirty joke, if you serve pancakes on Saturdays, if you help in building this hope house that we're talking about doing at some point, putting the play set together out there for the kids, all this work, all this labor for the kingdom of God, none of it's in vain. Is Pastor Yusuf's life in vain? Is it a waste sitting in a prison cell? Many in the world probably think this about Yusuf. What a fool. What a fool. Rotting in a prison cell, even to the point of death, for something he can't even see. But I ask you, who's the fool here? Who's the fool? Is his life a waste? Is his wife suffering in vain? Are his two little boys who may lose their daddy, are they suffering in vain? Not at all. Not at all. Because if Yusuf Nadarkani is executed, the crown of life he will receive from Jesus will be more beautiful and more enduring than anything the world can ever imagine. You are a part of a group of people who are fighting alongside you. At least you should be. Built upon solid rock. And you have a God who will not let even the powers of death overtake you. And this should grip us, folks. This should give us great confidence, not in ourselves, but in our God and Father, who, as Ephesians 4, 6 says, is over all and through all and in all. I've spoken at length this morning about the corporate dimension of the church and spoken directly to believers here. But before I close, I want to admonish those who may be unbelievers. There is an individual application here. It must be said that if anyone this morning is outside the gospel, outside the true church, not just those who make their way in on Sunday morning, but who believe the gospel, who follow Jesus as Lord, if you are outside this, if you do not believe the gospel, the reverse will happen. The gates of hell will overtake you. If you do not believe the gospel... The life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, the gates of hell will overtake you. But I don't believe that's the will of God. And so I just encourage you, 
I just admonished you, and now I encourage you to repent, to turn to Jesus. And if after the service is over, if you'd like to pray with me or if I could pray for you and lead you to the Savior, I'd love to. Or grab Daryl or grab another elder. I'd love to do this. Don't wait for the forces of death, the powers of hell to overtake you. Don't try to save face or think you're going to get embarrassed. Just come. Come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness, for your favor toward your people. Not because anything in ourselves, but because it was you who chose us. That is why it is by your grace. And we thank you from our whole hearts, and we know and we have confidence that the gates of hell will not prevail against your people, that we have eternal life in Jesus. And so we pray that you would encourage our hearts, we who are in Christ this morning, so that we can go out into the world and not be afraid, even if we're killed, but have confidence in Jesus, who bled and died for his people. Give us strength today as we go out into the world. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.